And we're back for another episode of AlphaCast, a special Tuesday broadcast. This is a makeup, the Slater Fire makeup show with the amazing Kelly Brogan, MD. We're so delighted to finally have her on the show. I feel like it's been an eternity since we've uh, planned on and talked about having her on. So this is going to be a really fun chat. And we want to thank everybody for joining us today on DLive. We do this every Thursday at 10 a.m. on DLive. That's 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. But we're going to start doing Tuesday shows, too, every now and then so that Bear and I can kind of get back into the fold and start just having fun topics, uh, discussions. So that will look out for that. Uh, if you want to be uh, notified when we're doing these shows, please join our mailing list on alphavedic.com. That's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com. And you can get all the information there about us. Join our Telegram. It's a wonderful community of awake souls who are really pushing the envelope of truth and wellness. And just it's a basically just a totally free platform to, to talk about anything. So uh, that's t.me forward slash alphavedic. And then uh, what else is going on? We've got a wonderful event coming up called Music and Sky, and that's in the in Joshua Tree Desert. It's a it's a very intimate affair, a wellness activation affair. Uh, we'll be discussing things like um, uh, we'll be doing a lot of workshops, breath work, and yoga, and discussing crypto uh, and of course sovereignty, wellness. We have an, <clears throat> a number of amazing speakers there. And if you want inf more information about that, actually just hit us up on Telegram or our Discord, which is alphavedic.com forward slash Discord. We're staying away from the Facebooks, Twitters, and all those because, quite frankly, we don't need them. So uh, if you do want to get information on that, you're going to have to do a little digging. But it is going to be an amazing, amazing uh, event. And uh, we really hope that if you are part of the Alphavedic family, you can make it. So that being said, let's jump into the podcast. Uh, Kelly Brogan is with us today. Uh, Kelly is a fearless freedom activist, holistic psychiatrist, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, <clears throat> A Mind of Your Own, Own Yourself, the children's book, A Time for Rain, and a co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. Kelly is the founder of the online healing program, Vital Mind Reset and the membership community Vital Life Project. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in systems neuroscience. She is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. Dr. Brogan's professional resume includes American Board of Psychi Psychiatry and Neurology Board certification, which she has recently elected not to renew, a specialization in integrative holistic medicine, NYU School of Medicine, faculty clinical instructor, fellowship in consultation liaison psychiatry, NYU School of Medicine, resident psychiatry, NYU reproductive psychiatry program, KRI Kundalini yoga teacher training certification, and so much more. And also probably just, you know, the school of hard knocks, which is probably the most important these days. Kelly Brogan, welcome, and Dr. Bear Paul Lando, welcome. Uh, Bear, I'm going to throw it over to you and let you kind of start it out, and um, we are just so pumped to have Kelly on today. Thank you, Michael. Kelly, so awesome to see you here today, and thank you so much for being with us. We've waited for this for a long time, and unfortunately, the fires here in the Northwest uh, forced us to cancel, uh, what was it, a couple weeks ago or anything, but thank you for being with us. It's just an honor to have you here. 
And, um, you know, you're, you're so active on so many things and you've created so many uh, wonderful platforms that are benefiting people in so many ways. Uh, what I really want to hear about today is what you're up to and, you know, any, any current, uh, uh, you know, projects that you have going on, if you could tell us about those. Uh, one question to get us started off, though, is uh, why didn't you renew your license? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that's a great question. A very loaded question. And first of all, I'm super, <laughs> super excited to be here with you both. When Mike um, messaged me, it was after Sayer had been on. And I was kind of just like, hmm, it's notable that I have not been invited onto AlphaCast. <laughs> I finally got the text. I was like, I thought you'd never ask. No, I just admire both of you so much. And it's Right, it's been one of the the many um, you know auspicious gifts of this process that I have had the the great opportunity to connect with people who are are more than like minded, you know, like minded, but also have su such a capacity to teach me and inspire me and to expand this sense that I'm not alone, um, you know, in in the world, in in my beliefs and convictions and passions, and um, so I'm I'm really excited to be here. But yes, it's a, it's a funny thing because um, I have been largely, I would say it's like been a benign neglect experience uh, that I have had with mainstream media. And it began with uh, the, the, my book, A Mind of Your Own. And that was with a, like a top five publisher. I was basically nobody on the internet uh, at that point, just really focused on my brick and mortar practice. And I got a huge book deal and was like the feature book uh, for the spring of 2016. And, you know, I don't know that uh, HarperCollins had much experience working with an MD who was coming out in quite an adversarial way, because that was very much my, you know, um, posture at the time against the pharmaceutical industry uh, to the extent that, you know, there's an exploding pill on the cover of the book. And I knew that I would not be able to waltz onto the Dr. Oz show and today's show and, you know, get a nice write up in the New York Times. And obviously I knew that we know, you know, where the subsidies for these outlets come from. We know that they're all, you know, controlled. And it was really a surprise to them. You know, I was sitting uh, with the team. It was probably three weeks before the pub date. And um, one of the publicists was literally in tears out of exasperation because I had gotten no, 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 no to every galley that was sent out uh, in terms of any sort of media support. And, you know, so we, Sayer helped initiate kind of, you know, a grassroots uh, movement and we ended up uh, getting the book into a lot of hands, which felt really exciting. You know, it's kind of the beginning of what you guys just said, you know, like, well, we don't need them actually, <laughs> you know, and, and not only do we not need them, but maybe this mycelium is more effective and more potent, more powerful uh, to disseminate, you know, truth. But after that point, I, I really, you know, I never got a negative write-up anywhere. Um, it was like I didn't exist, you know, as far as um, mainstream consciousness. Went. And I was very happy with that because I was prepared for a fight. You know, I, I took out a $2 million life insurance policy and I was, you know, very oriented around the cause in a, in a nihilistic way at the time um, and, and didn't, hadn't really connected uh, to my humanity, my own humanity, my experience of my myself as something other than proving that I'm right 
Uh, and that work wouldn't start actually for uh, another year or so uh, after that book was published. But it was um, kind of the beginning of a lot of dark turns of my spiral that I began to look at my relationship to my own um, feminism, I guess, because I had been identified, self-identified as a pretty militant feminist for very long time, like since early in my life, uh, egalitarian feminist, actually. And, and, you know, it was, I was the kind of girl who was like, you know, I can do what you can do bleeding kind of a thing. It was very competitive energy. Um, and I was very shocked to come under, um, you know, one of the larger troll waves I've ever heard of, um, you know, cause it was my team of five at the time. I mean, it was like round the clock just to keep our platforms from drowning under what I can only imagine were bot generated comments, but probably a lot of, um, as Cheryl Atkinson refers to it, astroturfing, you know, a lot of regular old normal people get enticed into these polarized waveforms. And I started to experience, you know, public death threats, aerial views of my home, um, memefied, and uh, it was all um, feminist groups who had decided that I uh, best fit the characterization of an ugly ableist. And I thought that, oh, that's so interesting. I never heard the term before. And, you know, as is the case with most criticism, there's always at least a small amount of truth in it, right? And I've experienced that, you know, when I've been publicly criticized, um, there's always something in it that's true. And actually, rarely is there much of a distortion. You know, I, I can't think of many instances where um, I've been dragged through the mud over a totally false allegation, interestingly. Um, but that was kind of the beginning of my work around healing my own masculine, my relationship to men, um, to big daddy government and all of my parentified projections. And I have... Um, enjoyed a lot of quiet after that until the beginning of the, um, you know, the current crisis, if we shall call it that. And I came out the gate because I'm sure just like both of you, I smelled a rat the second I heard a uh, mention of a potential uh, global pandemic. And I have been uh, one to question germ theory for some time, certainly not as long as you bear, um, and, and nor as in depth. But I came out in my own membership and shared on social media my questions about what was going on. And for whatever reason, that got picked up again by mainstream media. And their primary tool is character assassination um, and slander. So, you know, the, all this is a long-winded answer, but all they could really get on me was that I hadn't updated my website in the past two months to reflect that I chose not to renew my psychiatric uh, certification. So my license is intact, amazingly. And, uh, and if ever that is not the case, I will trust that that's how it's meant to be. But in, in, you know, for those who don't know, in, and many don't know, and they took advantage of this, but it, you can certify in a specialty. And what that means is that you have done your um, compliant best to memorize all of the uh, you know, information that they feel is important to know about medications and associated pathologies. And at this stage in my career, that would be an exercise in self-brainwashing and returning to some sort of occultist practice that has no place in my life. So I would never imagine that it would make sense for me to recertify. 
But anyway, so they wrote up all this stuff and even reported me to the Florida um, Licensing uh, Office of Professions for uh, misrepresenting myself on in my marketing and advertising materials. And it was like a whole thing because it, I didn't say explicitly that my um, holistic certification is not approved by the Florida Medical Board, which I needed to say. And that, that I said that I was board certified when it had lapsed two months ago. So it's kind of like a fun game at this point, like if that's how they want to, you know, try to declare the relevance of their criticisms of my perspective as a COVID denialist, um, that's fine with me. <laughs> well, you're, you're one of their shining stars. You know, you've gone to all their finest schools, Cornell and MIT, and, and you excelled in all those endeavors. And, you know, it's, uh, it's really daunting to the system when one of their own kind of doesn't about face and does things a little differently. You know, it's different from myself. I, I did work in a conventional system and go to some good schools and everything, but then I quickly and early on, uh, you know, did naturopathy and chiropractic and all that. So if I get out there and do what I do, they just say, ah, oh, the guy's a quack, you know? So, uh, you know, it's easier to dismiss people like myself, but you know, with people like yourself, it's, it really presents a PR problem for them. It's, um, it's very much the case, you know, that anything I've ever shared, I think without exception, uh, has already been shared by acupuncturists, chiropractors, naturopaths, you know, energy healers. I, I don't really have new ideas. I have my experience, right? And I have my powers of observation and, and synthesis. But because it's coming from somebody who was, you know, a dyed in the wool prescriber, it seems to have a different kind of weight because we still are programmed by, you know, the Church of Scientism to believe that only certain people deserve the microphone. And I happen to, you know, have the credentials of the priesthood. What comes with that, however, is that I have had to do and, and continue to do a lot of personal shadow work on, um, really bringing into light how it is that I may still be carrying and um, demonstrating the energy of that allopathic system that I was trained in, right? So I am still the same me that got all those degrees and, you know, experienced the lived trauma of inter internship, residency, and fellowship, and that very much believed in the pill-based model of symptom management. That me is still in me, right? So in many ways, spiritually, she's died and been reborn many times over again. But whatever it was that attracted me to, um, you know, a worldview that is dominance-oriented, that has to be healed, right? And and because otherwise, I just bring that over into a, a green pasture of natural medicine and I see that a lot in certain disciplines like functional medicine, which was my early training, that in many ways, the, the consciousness of it is very similar. It's more, more I would say, benign and you know, potentially side effect free. Uh, but this idea of you know, quantifying all the ways that you're broken and then providing the fix that comes externally in the form of supplements or whatever it is, is still very much a part of that uh, approach. And so, you know, I've had to really work hard on resolving some of the karmic burden even 
uh, of having medicated hundreds of pregnant women, for example, or breastfeeding women, um, and having, as I wrote about, you know, in a recent post, having even unconsciously leveraged my femininity to garner the trust of my patients, uh, because I do think that, you know, female MDs um, carry a different kind of um, energetic power of persuasion. I, I don't know if you would agree with that um, or not, but I do think that it's something I've had to really um, work on because I carry a lot of guilt and even shame uh, to this day, you know, that I was so unconscious. I also have compassion, you know, for the me that was then or at any given stage before I knew I had a choice. You only have a choice when you know that you have a choice. So I, uh, I recognize that it's, it's not a small um, responsibility that I have as somebody who, you know, was in, in, the, um, in the cult, so to speak, and now has left uh, to also do the work of really cleansing myself of the energies that I uh, participated in while I was there. Yeah, you know, in the sports world, we have an old saying, it's, uh, you know, that's why we play the game. And, uh, you know, you jumped in with both feet into, you know, a particular system. And how else can you understand that system or know the, you know, the institution at large unless you're internal to it? And I think what's uh, happened, you know, in medicine is the same thing that's happened in politics these days, which is either you're on this team or that team. And, you know, there's that clear dichotomy. So you can't, for instance, when, uh, you know, I had a, a few years where I worked in emergency services within the regular conventional system. And there was great efficacy to that. And, you know, and, and it was just, you know, obvious that there was a need for it. And then when I branched off into other types of medicine, uh, you know, I didn't have the same, um, you know, dilemma maybe that you're facing because now I'm just in a new system and then, you know, the emergency medicine was the thing of the past. And, you know, I could kind of find some congruity or, or a, you know, a explanation or rationale for, for both ends of it. But nowadays it's either you're in or you're out. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think, you know, what you're facing now. It's like, we you can't dabble in both. You know, we might make just a comment since I put you on the spot from the start here, uh, you know, about the license. A license is a piece of paper granted by a corporate state uh, or government institution that has nothing to do with what you went through in school to demonstrate your command of your subject matter and your ability to, you know, apply that in real life with patients. But what we have now is a usurpation of that system by state entities that are actually private corporate entities that say, well, that's all well and fine that you've proved yourself, but now you need to pay us a yearly licensing fee. And if you don't comply with the laws or the rules of commerce that we made up to control, you know, the, the whole shebang, then you don't get to play. And of course, we see that happening in every facet of life. Now, if you don't comply with certain things and you get ostracized from the whole thing you can't do business you can't do anything you know a long time ago uh, i gave up even my alternative licenses because i said why am i paying these clowns every single year money 
and you know having to go do these uh, continuing education hours that uh, you know would make me compliant now <clears throat> you know in my experience every year I studied my ass off and you know was traveling all over the world to pick the brains of <clears throat> you know people doctors you know just gifted people all over to just to, to be better at what I did but they wouldn't allow me to apply that to my continuing education credits. But at the same time, that same licensing bureau would allow me to go to a seminar that would teach me how to practice build and lure in more patients to make more money or, or to learn how to work the insurance system to make more money. And then, okay, you can allow that for your continuing education. So I just said, I'm done. I'm done. And I gave them up. And you know, what we did is we had a clinic and private property that, uh, you know, um, people came in as consenting adults and, you know, we worked with each other and we were never in a commercial zone. So sorry, I just wanted to get that out a little bit and any comments you might have. No, I love that. And I think that, you know, you were, as much as I know about you and admire, you know, you're an early shifter, right? So, so you have been a sentinel where you have perceived that these systems are bankrupt, you know, figuratively and potentially literally, and that they're crumbling. And that the only way for us to progress into a new paradigm is to assume self-agency and personal authority. Uh, that's not only extremely uncomfortable for most of us because we are um, something I discuss a lot is um, you know the child psychology of dependency. You know we're still very much in our collective uh, you know childhood or adolescence at best, and we haven't been initiated to ourselves. So this concept that we already have the power that would otherwise be conferred to us by an authority is. Is, a, is like a hallmark idea, I think, to most of us. It's not a real lived uh, potential possibility. And so I think what you sensed is, is, oh, I already, I don't have to ask for this. I already have this. But I imagine that you grew, I believe in, you know, morphic fields and, and, and this, this, this um, you know, generating a field of possibility. You probably already had grown that clinically. Uh, before you could emancipate yourself. And, you know, in my experience, I, you know, take responsibility for the fact that I very much leveraged my credentials and my conventional training to grow that field, right? Because when patients would come to me on, you know, five meds they'd been on for 25 years, having been completely indoctrinated to their own victimhood, and they would sit, I would often be the last stop, you know, uh, before sometimes even state hospital or electroconvulsive therapy or whatever. And for me to sit there and look them in the eye and say, actually, there's nothing wrong with you. And you are not mentally ill. And whenever you're ready, you can begin the process of reclaiming yourself, right? <laughs> in fewer words. That uh, transmission, right? That return of the baton to them was um, amplified by the fact that I have an, the, the capacity to also be, you know, the, the jailer, you know, to also be the one who could put them in shackles, right? To be that prescriber because I'm choosing not to do that and I'm reflecting to them something very different perhaps than they've been told. I am, I am using that authority, hopefully for good, 
But after a certain point of growing the field of healing possibility and potential, you know, I stopped dressing professionally when I would go to my office. You know, I stopped really caring um, whether or not I had any of these credentials maintained. And I knew I didn't need it and it didn't matter. And I knew that anyone could say anything about me, you know, on the internet or online. And it really is irrelevant uh, because, you know, the people who come into contact with me are destined to do so. And their journey is already underway. I'm not doing anything but blowing a little fairy dust, you know, onto their process to give them the permission that they've been brainwashed into thinking that they need, right? And, and in fact, of course, we know that we give ourselves permission, but sometimes there's, you know, uh, I guess the right person in the right place to remind us of that. Yeah. And I'd like our audience to appreciate what you went through. And you're absolutely right. I think it was easier for me because I already had made the break. So when I decided to stop renewing licenses, uh, I already had, uh, you know, a, a large following and, you know, my livelihood was intact and I already figured out how to do an end around. Whereas, you know, you're in the system and had to make that decision from within the system and give up you know, just a great deal of effort that it took you to get there and also risk possible consequences from the powers that be that do not like people like you doing what you did. So uh, my hat's off to you. And, uh, you know, it's just, I don't think there's many people that would take that kind of action. Uh, you know, it's witnessed uh, every day when you have to deal with a, a bureaucrat or one of the gatekeepers within the system when you question, you know, anything, they will be all over you because their pension depends on it and they will not buck the system and risk their own pension. Where somebody like you, you, you just put it all on the line and you know, that's uh, you deserve a lot of respect for that. It's um, it's interesting because, you know, I've been reflected that a number of times, many times over the past, you know, 10 or 11 years, and it's really not my, my personal experience, and that's not kind of false humility either. It's, it never felt courageous to me. It felt like a compulsion. And that's part of, you know, what I, um, part of what informs my perspective that activists are, by and large, uh, particularly pub public activists, you know, because there was a point at which I felt like, well, I can't just talk to my patients about, you know, um, the untold story of psychotropics. I have to tell the world, right? That, that we are by and large fairly wounded individuals. And the drive to uh, engage in battle with, with that parentified authority, which in my case would be the medical system, right? Or the government at large. Um, is so irrepressible that it becomes an existential need, right? Until we get to the point, hopefully, um, where we are, recognize, you know, that we are potentially becoming, as Nietzsche said, the monsters that we are fighting. And we understand that there must be a different tact taken in order to preserve um, the humanity that we purport to want to save and protect, right? And that... Um, that's when the work started for me. That's when I began to really experience pride, you know, for myself. Um, it's, 
it's, it really wasn't before then, you know, books and degrees. And I never felt proud for one minute because those were all fulfilling my program uh, that said, I'm only as worthy as my intellect and my usefulness to, to somebody else. Right. And so it wasn't until I began to confront um, the limitations of my idealized self and my projected identity and to begin to learn that I'm still the same person, even if I'm none of the things that I thought I was, that's when I think the courage really kicked in. So it certainly wasn't in getting kicked off of, you know, two faculties or, or whatever blacklisted, you know, um, you know, by mainstream media that was like, felt like a game to me that I was, I felt like I was winning. Um, so, so the experience of individuation that only began for me even a couple of years ago uh, was really when I, I felt like, okay, <laughs> there should be some degrees for this on my wall. <laughs> well, oh, absolutely. And with what you went through uh, gave you the experience to whether what's happening now and what's to come. And, uh, and, and, you know, as, as we all know, that's, you know, behind the scenes, we talk and we, we understand it you know, why we've gone through what we've gone through. Michael, I, I spoke over you. Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say in relation to that Nietzsche quote, um, you know, there are different strategies now that we're all here and we're doing this. And I've recently been thinking a lot about manifesting and, the you know, with the rise of the alternative truther movement, you know, the question is, with all this information coming out and with all these amazing channels speaking truth and it, what is the, the strategy here? Because sometimes I wonder, are we by quote unquote fighting the battle against them actually manifesting the battle so that they can sit back and watch it unfold? And so I've been taking a more of kind of a quote unquote, like light worker approach where I'm more just working on myself and, and, and trying to inspire people to kind of go more spiritual and kind of just, you know, leave the system, not fight it. But mm. I was just curious, Kelly, and this might kind of play into what you're currently doing with this, with this cool um, kind of activation you're doing with the my body uh, stuff you're doing. Um, what do you do? You ever think about that, like in terms of the manifestation of the actual conflict itself, and what are some strategies for us to kind of really manifest the reality that I know we all want to see. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, I know that we are very much on the same page around this. It's just that I think of myself for the reasons we've been discussing as a bit more of like the, the like, you know, it's like I'm blowing the whistle that the house is on fire, right? And I'm like, go that way. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know necessarily what's over there, right? I just know something's up. We got to go, go that way, right? And I feel like you all are over there already, you know, like with, with your, you know, regenerative practices and your, you know, uh, intrepid um, digital innovation and just your relationship to the earth and what I, what I know of where you put your priorities, right? So there are lots of folks, uh, you know, I, I just talked to Dr. Tom Cowan, I think of him as a, you know, another ally in that sense, like who have been creating the new for a long time. And it required that they have an awareness of deficiencies in the current model. And just the, it's like a neutral observation that it's done. It's just done. And we're gonna, it's like a relationship that's over. Okay, you cry about it a little bit and then you move on. Um, and so it has been a multi-year process for me to shed the warrior, you know, archetype uh, in ways because I am very much built for it. You know, I um, when I am 
scared, I uh, am defensively structured to become more in my intellect. I become more sharp. I become, you know, have greater access to this Rolodex that just unfolds almost in my catecholamine bath, you know, like it unfolds um, as a result of my triggering. I, I become an instrument of warfare, you know, intellectually. And this has been a very big issue uh, in my relationship with Sayer because he has very different defenses. Um, and we are totally incompatible, you know, in that way, in the perfect way. Because where I go into my head, he goes into his heart, and we can't even engage dialectically. He won't, and that's the perfect partner for me, is somebody who won't go there with me. Um, so because I am in ways built for it, and I don't feel afraid at all, uh, and I kind of enjoy it, right, in, in many ways, um, the, the black and white thinking, right? So what you were saying earlier, Bear, I have abdicated any respect or regard for integrative medicine for a long time. For me, it's been very black and white, like pick a camp, right? A tribalist mentality. And I have perceived that the incoherence that you would have to engage to, to work with integrative medicine, for example. So when I say integrative medicine, I mean like chemotherapy plus some acupuncture or whatever, fish oil with your Prozac. Um, the best of both worlds, the middle way, right, is how it's spiritually uh, bypassed into uh, reality. To me, that is an arrested development of your own consciousness to not recognize that there are gross incompatibilities in the worldviews that subtend those two totally different worlds, right? Like, is your body, uh, you know, a flesh robot on a dead rock in the middle of nowhere? you know, that's subject to the random forces of bad genes, bad luck and bad timing? Or, you know, is your body the manifestation of your, your soul that speaks to you about your subconscious and guides you into an experience of your human mystery that you are privileged to, to come into contact with in this lifetime, right? So, so which is it? It can't be both. And it can't be one sometimes and the other sometimes because I can't tell you how many spiritual folks, um, including very high level gurus, I have, um, you know, dialogued with over the years, who espouse all of the principles of bodily self love and natural medicine and holistic health. And then the moment they encounter any kind of uh, so called health scare, they are running to the doctor or even the emergency room. And in my experience, many, many, many of these, you know, thought leaders and, and spiritual teachers have been captured by this psychological operation because they have not had the opportunity to recognize um, those catacombs within them of dark places that they are projecting onto that germ, right? Or, or that disease or whatever it might be. So until and if we begin to see, and in my case, I'll just speak for myself, that that which I judge, right? So what am I judging? I might be judging um, the exercise of authority uh, through means of coercion, and I might be judging manipulation through, um, you know, declared truths, whatever it is. How am I embodying those things? Because they wouldn't bother me if, if this is my belief, they wouldn't bother me and, and charge me up with rage and condemnation if I didn't also have those traits, right?
but I don't want to acknowledge that I have those traits. So I would rather judge them and rail against them outside of me. And that's projection of the shadow. And I have done that for many years of my activism. Right. And it's also the parentification of authority that I feel let me down. Right. So if, if I feel my parents let me down or didn't protect me in some way or violated me in some way or whatever, then it's so um, much easier for me to experience all authority that way as either all good or all bad. So those complying with their masks and lining up for the vaccine, you know, are in the compliance phase. And those like me who are having a tantrum, but also demanding that government respond in a particular way, right? So not declaring sovereignty, which is more the model I'm working towards and I'll describe um, in terms of this event, but really like having a tantrum, right? That is still the same level of um, divesting my own agency. And if I can't see that, that any kind of finger pointing or blaming is disempowering to me and it's ultimately fueling this concept that there is a power larger than me outside of myself again whether it's idealized or whether it's vilified it's this huge entity and i'm this tiny little dot orienting around it you know in, in some kind of an orbit around it and i very much have come to the to the personal conclusion that when i fight the fight you know again which i want to do it's my natural inclination um, also cause I know their tools, you know, and sometimes people ask me like, Oh, what do your colleagues think about you? You know, what are your former conventional colleagues? And I have never, never experienced anything but respect, you know, or, or neglect, you know, or just denial of my existence, which is also a form of, you know, a form of that. Um, and maybe because I know how to work with their tools, you know, I know how to write a book with 500 references in it. I know how to dig through the science and that's obviously one of the many things Sayer and I have in common is we know how to play in their playground. However, we're still in their playground when we're playing that game. And, and like you said, Mike, I think that at this point, you know, the stakes are so high and we have such a capacity to infuse our vital force um, into the divisiveness that, you know, not to get too kind of, uh, you know, metaphysical, but that they are potentially feeding off of chronically, you know, to, to, we are, we are giving them exactly what they want, exactly what they need to continue to, 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 um, vivify their otherwise very desiccated <laughs> human landscape of experience. You know, whatever we think these, these people are, if they even are people, um, they are most assuredly, uh, you know, deriving life force from our experience of negative emotions, of fear, and um, our di divided state. So that's why I kind of came to this place where I was like, you know what? My beliefs about health are not summarized, you know, through the language of privation, meaning that my belief about health is not that it's the absence of death or symptoms or disease. That's not actually what I believe health is, right? And I'm sure if, if you were to tell me what you believe health is, you wouldn't say it's, it's not being sick. No, it has its own totally sovereign definition. You know, it's this incredible tapestry of, you know, kaleidoscopic mystery that results in an experience of aliveness, right? And, and there are a million ways we could define it through our 
um, our, our, our lived experiences of reclaiming health and being health and, and owning our health. And what are, the, what are the stories that we've lived, you know? What have we healed from that we were told we couldn't? What did it take? You know, how did we call in just the right resource at just the right time? Was it, you know, homeopathy or essential oils or energy medicine? Or was it just the right food? Or was it smiling more, laughing more, making love more, you know? What was it that brought us closer and closer and closer to this thing that we call health, right? There's a whole conversation we can have there and I'll tell you, when I switched gears around 2015, out of this kind of like Joan of Arc, <laughs> you know, vibe with my sword aloft and into focusing on outcomes, possibilities, right? I started publishing them. I started collecting video testimonials. Every time I would watch a video testimonial of somebody who radically healed from something that maybe even in the medical literature thus far has not been documented as possible, I weep, okay? Every time uh, we have a, a video reel um, for what we're calling the thank you body rally on October 16th. And I cannot, I probably watched it 30 times. I cannot watch it without crying. And it's something that happens in my, my heart. It's this, this expansive experience of, of hope, but also a remembrance of, Oh, that was always there. That was always there while I was engaging in that swinging pendulum of, masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines, Prozac or no Prozac, you know, beneath that was always just this innocent, beautiful, um, you know, natively empowered experience of humanity, right? This is what it is to be human. They are doing their best and it's a genius job at trying to induce amnesia about what it is to be human, but we know that when we connect to ourselves and each other, and particularly in community of like-minded and like-hearted people, something happens that they cannot touch. And only we know about maybe, you know, maybe they don't even know what it is. And that kind of power, which I think is most experienced through gratitude, uh, it's not just me, you know, the, the HeartMath Institute has <laughs> devoted decades of research to the resonant power. And I know that you, you know, have experience directly with those, um, the healing power resonance there, you know, the gratitude is our greatest weapon. And so for me, it's been a real practice um, since kind of conceiving of this event where we will rebrand the protest and, you know, we'll, we'll, take to the streets and create an experience of, you know, ecstatic um, bliss together, you know, that we will not do so in opposition, that it won't be referential, you know, to the dominant paradigm. It doesn't need to be. It's like you said in the beginning, we just don't need it. We've got enough to just be us, right? Be the change. And it's, it's a practice for a lot of activists like me, you know, because I want to reference what's wrong with the existing system and have, you know, reels of, of scientific reasons to, you know, try to inspire people to awareness around that. But it's really in the end, not what attracts people to a new paradigm. So I've been super inspired by that Bucky Fuller quote, you know, which is summarized by, you don't fight, you know, the existing paradigm, you generate a new one that uh, renders it obsolete. And that's what I'm really dedicating myself towards at this point. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the uh, protest idea is great when it 
really gives a lot of inspiration, like David Icke's speeches, you know, in Trafalgar Square lately in London, and um, what we saw with RFK Jr. speaking in Berlin, and the masses of people, those kind of protests are very important, I think, because they inspire all of humanity to rise up and feel like we have brothers and sisters who are here with us. But then it's like, okay, protests are good. Now let's work on workshops coming together, community. At least I feel like that's where the true empowerment comes when we come together in person and work together to come up with ideas for like, what can we do to create the new reality we want to see with that Buckminster Fuller quote, right? So I think it's uh, like everything, there needs to be balance, right? Like the, the protests are great because it's empowering, it's inspiring. It's like, you know, I'm reading this book on Martin Luther King Jr. right now and how they killed him because mm -hmm. he was amazing at doing that, at, at going out inspiring people through his amazing speeches about nonviolence and bringing people together. And that's what's so empowering is we need that, but then we need to come together and work on solutions. So, and that's what you're doing with this. And I think it's brilliant. Uh, go ahead, Bear. No, I was just going to say, uh, Kelly, I agree wholeheartedly. It is a parasitic relationship, um, you know, with the, the so-called powers that be and, you know, the, the vast majority of humanity. And I believe most of us at our core are very loving, um, you know, people that do not want any of this. We don't want to hate somebody of a different political uh, persuasion or otherwise. And, you know, the, the parasitic relationship can actually be demonstrated with uh, instrument-assisted um, testing wow. that will show that there's very real grid overlays electronically that take our energy. But the giveaway is that they still need our consent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, many years... Uh, you know, my early years, especially I, the more truth I found out, the angrier I became because I was more of a, you know, typical alpha <laughs> uh, type A personality and, uh, you know, just want to fight, you know, as soon as I'm confronted and, you know, you realize, yeah, you're just giving them exactly what they feed off of. So it's an interesting thing, you know, I want to, your thoughts on this, you know, in any other endeavor, like we could start a business together and I bet our business meeting would be about, okay, how can we succeed and build wealth? We wouldn't have a board meeting and sit around and wring our hands and say, okay, how do we keep from going broke? But medicine, unlike any other, uh, you know, uh, endeavor is about, sickness and how do we get rid of sickness, not get rid of it, but keep from, you know, getting sick or abate symptoms and that sort of thing, rather than focusing on what we do want. And a lot of my experience in alternative medicine, I've come to the conclusion that it's, it's what I call green allopathy, which is you're still in the same old box but you do things a little bit less toxically and you give a lot of lip service to holistic, even though you're not even um, acknowledging the forces that put everything into place in the first place. So uh, yeah, why do we do that in medicine? So, you know, Sayer and I really focus a lot of our discussion and you know, dinner table conversation about, about and around the kind of philosophical uh, underpinnings of of the concept of biopolitic, right, and um, how it is that perhaps 
medicine as we know it, you know, conventional medicine actually doesn't have much to do at all uh, with sickness or, or health and has a lot more to do with control of, of civilians, right? And how it is that a, an entire body of people can be, you know, divested of any sense of personal agency over their own bodies. That requires decades of brainwashing and conditioning because we have to come to understand that we are fundamentally broken, fundamentally weak, you know, and fundamentally um, unable to know the state of our own bodies, right? So what is testing? What is screening? All of these very insidious practices and behaviors that condition this idea that somebody outside of you, whether it's a doctor or a technology, knows better than you could ever know. You would be, you know, <laughs> crazy to imagine that you could know, you know, whether or not you have a, a growing tumor or whether or not that, you know, growth is even a problem or whether you're positive for this test or negative for that one. You can't know that. Only the authorities know that, right? And once you've been convinced that your body is a utilitarian and a very objective space, then you are easily controlled. And if we layer on top of that, um, the role of trauma and the ways in which, you know, we, you know, are, are programmed to hide our um, feelings of unworthiness, uh, our self-loathing, um, and our fear of abandonment, rejection, and betrayal that drives our personality defenses, you know, for at least the first half of our life where it serves us. And then in the second half of our life, this is what drives our, our suffering and, and pain, right? When we are um, in states of unresolved and unacknowledged trauma, it's also very easy for us to relate to uh, external authority around, you know, the experience of safety, right? So when this authority tells us, here's how you can experience safety, you can get your mammogram, you can take your Prozac, and you can put your mask on, I'm going to be very susceptible to those suggestions, not only um, because I know that I'm not the authority, but also because I'm terribly afraid of punishment and judgment. And really, it's judgment that rings like some sort of a death knell for most of us who are still in a trauma-based mindset because it feels like the equivalent of, of abandonment that would lead to death, you know, as a child. And, and these are child-level emotions. You know, if, if you are um, judged as bad, that could mean that your mom leaves you by the roadside and that's the end of your life, you know? So these are existential uh, vectors that are driving our compliance. and. You know, uh, germ theory is, I'm sure you would agree, you know, is very much um, a constant, a theoretical construct that it's very hard to imagine has any role in modern society beyond uh, being leveraged for, you know, bio uh, political gain and agendas of biosecurity, uh, potentially financial um, incentives, you know, through things like the indemnified vaccination program. But I think that money only goes so far to explain what ultimately is really um, psychological warfare and the leveraging of you know, traumas to experience dominance and, and control. And so that's why you know, I'm sure you've found, and you might, may have known this for a long time, 
there's kind of no point in arguing or debating about any of this stuff. Like this isn't about information transfer or a lack of information and somebody's light bulb is just going to go on because they, you know, read uh, a blog or, you know, come into contact with the right YouTube video. It's really about your readiness to recognize that, you know, the authorities that you have positioned as ultimately benevolent and well-intentioned may not share your value system to the extent that they actually um, have conscious intention to do you harm. And that is just such a big pill to swallow. It's just too big a red pill to swallow for most people because they haven't done that work with their own parents, you know, or their own caregivers to acknowledge the possibility that their parents failed them in very, very big ways. And that that's actually, it's kind of not even personal, <laughs> you know, it's just the reality. Give up hope, give up hope, right? And until I had a, an amazing um, therapist, Alison Birnbaum, for many years who really helped me to give up on all hope that my parents would follow me down my spiritual awakening journey and everything else. And that was essential for me, you know, to begin to cut those cords and to begin to see them through the adult lens of the mixed object, right? Where they're both good and bad, right? They both have innocence and, you know, potentially um, malevolent intentions at times, I mean, right? Whether or not that came from subconscious places, unconscious places, or, or intentional places. Um, in the end, to be able to hold both of those is how we begin the process of holding both of those within ourselves through individuation and understanding that we are sovereign when we can claim all of those parts of ourselves that we'd rather not identify with. And many of them have a lot in common with, you know, that which we judge. So for me, conventional medicine has really become a repository for that dynamic um, that I can only hope is in its death, death throes at this point in our collective evolution. Uh, and, I, and I do think that's possible, you know, that people are really starting to understand like, wow, actually I can uh, heal myself. I can inform myself. You know, I can decide what it is that I need. I can live in defiance of a, a consensus reality and still be safe. I can source that safety from within instead of from, you know, orchestrating all the variables uh, on the outside to reflect to me this promise of of safety. And so that's why we're seeing, you know, forms of medicine that don't even look like medicine. Like you're saying, it's not even categorizable as alternative medicine because it's just the journey that somebody went on to get to know themselves. Exactly. I can't tell you how many uh, clients I work with over the years that when they first came in, they were just oblivious to a lot of the things I was telling them, but then and maybe not even open to it. Uh, but then some months later, not only is there body healing, but we're having entirely different conversations in the process. And in hindsight, they say, you know, I would never want to go through that again. It was horrendous and scary, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world either. Exactly. And that's where the, the reclamation of the concept of you know, the dark night of the soul, the concept of growth through adversity, and this idea that we, we actually don't need to be coddled and bubble wrapped um, in order to experience a, a life worth living, right? So, so to many of us who zoom out and say, well, you know, is, it, is, is safety the ultimate 
defining experience of my, you know, human journey here. Most, the three of us would not say that, right? We're looking for something different, you know, whether it's feeling alive, whether it's feeling joy, whether it's feeling bliss, whether it's feeling the mystery, right? It's not, it doesn't come down to safety. And in fact, what we sacrifice in service of the illusion of safety actually ends up, ironically, generating the conditions of our own enslavement. And until you've experienced that in ways directly, um, you can't resolve the cognitive dissonance that would say, well, but of course you want to be safe. Of course you want to do just in case, right? And, and that's the languaging of anyone who gets captured by conventional medicine's dogma. It's always kind of, um, you know, a just in case. You know, why don't you take antibiotics for your urinary burning just in case it could go to your kidneys and you could have a severe infection, you know, or, you know, maybe you should take, you know, some Zoloft postpartum, you know, just in case your symptoms were to get worse. You wouldn't want that. I mean, what if things end up getting really, you know, it's always this kind of projective catastrophizing um, capture of our childlike fear of the, of the unknown. And there's so many layers when you look through the lens of psychopathy, you know, there's so many operative layers here, including, you know, um, Munchausen's, right? So Munchausen syndrome is, uh, is a psychiatric diagnosis. It's considered fairly recidivistic and severe, you know, where um, an individual behaves as if they are sick when they're not. Right. And you tell me <laughs> that that is not what's going on in the world today. People walking around, you know, obsessively washing their hands, masking their faces, avoiding others, you know, so as not to contaminate them and getting tested when they feel perfectly fine. This is by definition um, a psychopathology, according to the hallowed halls of the NIMH. Right. And there's another entity relatedly called Munchausen's by proxy, right? And that is when a caregiver induces illness, sometimes without even, you know, or most of the time actually without the awareness of the uh, so-called, you know, patient or victim, um, they induce illness and they do it for in, in another that they're caring for and they, they do it for some kind of secondary gain, right? So you could even frame the entirety of the medical system through this lens, because you know the same regulatory agencies, whether it's EPA, FDA, AMA, you know that are with one hand, you know, uh, allowing for a hundred thousand plus unstudied toxicants, you know, to pollute our environment, industrial toxicants to pollute our environment, that are um, subsidizing, you know, glyphosate in our food supply and all manner of you know processed. Um, chemicals and, and toxicants in our, in our food supply are also um, the ones who are diagnosing us as sick and then prescribing chemicals that further poison us to maintain this identification as patient relative to a system of authority that we are intent, you know, we're supposed to be trusting, right? So, so it's this circular system of inducing illness, let alone through a million EMFs and, you know, um, Vaccines. absence of exposure to, you know, nature, et cetera, uh, inducing illness. And then, you know, in many ways, benefiting, profiting, whether it's through control or finances or whatever, from the induced illness, um, 
also acting as savior, right? Because it's often the mom who is, you know, subtly poisoning her own child, making them sick, who is the one to bring them into the emergency room. Um, and that's the picture of Munchausen's by proxy. So there's a lot of um, poetry in, you know, the, the realms of pattern recognition in psychiatry that can explain the ways in which, um, you know, we are being, you know, potentially <laughs> rendered test subjects for the very pathologies that um, the system itself would identify as problematic. And when you look at the a yeah. quote unquote clinical setting or an, an actual hospital or a dentist's office, which I haven't been to, and I've been to a dentist in 15 years or a doctor in that long for a quote unquote checkup, um, it doesn't shout health and wellness and happiness. It's all sterile. And, and I mean, my wife's a nurse. I hate going in the hospital. I feel like I'm already getting sick when I go in there. It's just, yeah. it's, you know, it's just so bizarre that we have gotten to that point of <clears throat> where it's just this uh, obvious, we talk about this a lot, this reductionist materialism that we're all reduced to this Cartesian model of just meat puppets, right? Where um, we're essentially mechanical. And so we'd be treated that way, like taking your car into the shop to get fixed. And this, this total disconnect from the spiritual kind of um, the other side of the equation where, as you mentioned, the nocebo effect of the practitioners or a nurse really, you know, initiating illness in that way, there's this total refusal of the system to accept this idea as they see, they call it woo-woo, that there are energetic fields that are really at the source of everything and that, are the, that, that is really what we need to be looking at. And now people are finally waking up to that. And I think a lot of people are rejecting uh, you know, the system. So it's, it's really amazing to see, but it is quite baffling, huh? And that's why I love the germ theory because it literally relates to the, like the Rockefellers and the oil tycoons creating the medicine. So they make that's you sick and then they provide the cure, which makes you more sick. And it's just a circle of death and eugenics, <laughs> but people are waking up real quick, huh? Huh, Bear? Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of our talks and other, you know, doctors that we interview, we get into bioterrain medicine and concepts about germ theory. Is it real or not? And, you know, because that was my specialization for many years, uh, you know, we have a good discussion and it's great because I understand that certain audiences, that's very revealing to them and actually really stretches their imagination. But in reality, you know, I left that kind of bioterrain model a long time ago. I know on a on a certain level, the microbes and everything, I understand that it's not the way we're taught. But in reality, they're just downstream byproducts of the other part of the real biotrain, which is electric. And that electric biotrain would bring us face to face with the fact of who we really are. And the fact that even when confronted uh, with 5G radiation bathing us and that sort of thing, we have the ability to not only identify those sources, but to neutralize them in a very precise way, even if you have a tower next door. Um, I wanted to ask you this, you know, um, just from your perspective as a practitioner, because it was my toughest thing, you know, that I had to, that challenged me over the years, is a lot of people would come to me to hedge their bets. And, you know, it's kind of like what you said, take a little fish oil with your Prozac, which I love, by the way. Uh, so anyway, um, 
you know, they'd be taking, you know, all the meds and especially things like chemo, because we saw a lot of people with the, that diagnosis uh, over the years. And it was really tough to see, you know, when you just witness people taking themselves out and you realize on another level, they, they are taking themselves out, you know, just below the surface. That's what they're choosing to do. And, um, you know, just, I wrestled with that for so many years. Like, how do I deal with this until I came to the conclusion that, you know, it's really none of my business. And it also, as a practitioner, um, you know, you come to the conclusion that, uh, okay, I develop certain tools as you have, as we all do in the business, but it's really not the other tools. You know, that's kind of part of the show. And they do have efficacy on a certain level, but it's still only meant to create a window of opportunity for light bulbs to come on further upstream. So, and then also as a practitioner, of course, we all have our, our energy field that is a medicine in and of itself. So if somebody comes to you, it's because they're attracted to your energy field, not necessarily the tools, the outer tools. So uh, that was, you know, that was a tough one for me. It's just to just to observe people doing things that on a certain level, it's like, wow, that's suicide. You know, that's their choice. I'm here to assist them in their journey, not to uh, attempt to play God and think that I'm going to keep them in their body longer than they want to be there in the first place. Uh, I'm, and we have such resonance, <laughs> you know, in, in our conceptualization. And I find it just fascinating how different our, our paths were, you know, to this, to this place. You know, I actually have come to believe that, uh, and you might even agree, you know, that, that we all actually choose exactly how and when we die. Um, and, you know, whether that's fully conscious or not, you know, is, is, is immaterial because we have that agency and I don't believe we lose it for one second ever, you know, throughout our, our lifetime. And so I've been very, very interested in the role of victim mentality, the role of victim consciousness, um, which I've sometimes called the only true human pathology, because if you are identified as uh, a victim of your own body, of circumstances, of somebody else, of the government, of your parents, of your traumas, um, you not only on a, on a spiritual level can't begin the process of understanding who it is that you are, you are um, reclaiming your power, which is, you know, is, is reality creating power. Um, but you can't even on a neurobiological level transition into regenerative state because there's a neurobiological signature for helplessness, right? And that is the victimhood um, state. So you literally can't heal even just on a secular biological level until you begin the process of understanding that this is purposeful, meaningful, and that actually you're creating it, right? And so I've been, you know, uh, I've invited a lot of um, critical feedback uh, for this perspective um, that I, I have in a fairly absolutist sense because I've been um, described as shaming victims, right? So, so how is it that, that ableism, right? So how is it that I expect that everyone has this capacity without exception? Surely there are people who are just sick and, and disadvantaged and underprivileged and disabled. And this only applies you know, to certain people. Only certain women can have a home birth. Only certain women can come off of their birth control or their antidepressant. And you know, 
to my mind, it's if you want to, you know, you really want to. So like you said, there is sometimes an incoherence in, in what we're attracted to and what we're ready for. And that's why, you know, I've, I've put so much effort into trying to understand readiness. Like, what is it? <laughs> right. And the closest I've come to, you know, defining it is just when change feels like a relief, right. Instead of, you know, an uphill battle or a challenge when, when beginning to take one step in front of the other towards change actually is necessary for you to experience some degree of a relief. And that's where it, it takes on this life force of its own. The process does. And like you said, you know, we play the part of facilitators and supporters, and a lot of it is energetic. Um, the, the program that I, you know, have now scaled that was ultimately you know what i uh, did in my practice for what's also what i applied to my myself um, when i was diagnosed with hashimoto's a version of it anyway and that i iterated with my uh, mentor uh, dr nicholas gonzalez um you know is a supplement free <laughs> intervention and doctor free program that is so basic it's inexplicable you know that we have history making outcomes you know like i I uh, have attracted a team of clinical volunteers. We've published multiple case reports, um, many of which have literally never been documented in medical history. Like we published the first case of uh, resolution and remission of Graves' disease, for example, um, through natural means with you know, avoiding thyroidectomy. I'm sure this has happened thousands and thousands of times, but nobody's ever bothered to write it up, right? To, to, to declare to the conventional world, in case it's interested, you know, that this is actually possible and radiotherapy or thyroidectomy is not uh, the only option, right? So we've published case reports, we've published a case series. We recently republished a randomized um, controlled trial uh, for you know, depression. And this protocol is nutrition. It's uh, coffee enemas, so detox that I learned uh, specifically from uh, Nick Gonzalez. And it's daily contemplative practice, but then it's a lot, a lot of reverse brainwashing, right? So it's a lot, a lot of unlearning of the, the many, many myths and lies, you know, that we've been told about our bodies, about health and about uh, chronic illness. And so how do you explain that something so basic could result in, in the outcomes that, you know, I've had the privilege to witness. And now this very large field of potential and possibility that I, I, I believe is what will account for any further outcomes is because that field already exists. Um, and maybe I had a part in establishing it, but I certainly don't play a part in it you know, chiefly any longer. The reason that it works is because it's a ritual. You know, it's a ritual to break the spell of the occultist indoctrination that you are broken and dependent. And this ritual involves an uncomfortable level of self-care. It involves taking the wheel of your own car and recognizing that you had this control the whole time and you didn't know it. Now that you know it, you can't unknow it. So you better work with that responsibility wisely, because if you revert to victimhood and blaming and self-pity and all the things that the child self says, you know, wah, wah, it's not fair, why me? It's going to feel like shit, right? It's going to feel way worse than it did when you were unconscious of your own role in, in your illness. And so from that point onward, once that door is open, anytime you have symptoms, you have the option to perceive them as meaningful messengers, right? To engage curiosity rather than reflexive, you know, suppression or fear. And that choice is yours and it cannot be taken away. How you narrate what's happening 
always, you know, Viktor Frankl, you know, who, who wrote from <laughs> the, the Holocaust, you know, talked about that, that your attitude about what's happening is always um, your choice. And it's not to bypass the pain, fear, shame, grief that can come up, right? It's not to pretend it's not there because that's actually how we become sick. It's to understand that that victimhood has a place. Let those emotions rip, right? If you feel scared that something's wrong with your body, cry about it, right? Journal about it. Tell a friend about it. But no, engage that meta-awareness that ultimately that's not the true story. That ultimately the true story has a neutrality and okayness and even a beauty um, that isn't represented in that scary emotional terrain of response to the body as other. And this is, I think, um, you know, where the real work of healing comes from, to vigilantly examine all of our victim stories as they come up. Mine come up every day, you know? It's like a, a full-time job just to maintain, you know, personal awareness of how I'm falling into old patterns and old traps of, you know, really giving my own agency away. And I think ultimately um, it's about story. We're all talking story. When we go to medical school, we learn story and we identify with the story. In reality, we're talking about pure energy, prana, mana, waveforms, whatever you want to call it. But we've all been taught to attach stories to that. So rather than just watch the weather come and go, uh, you know, we, we hang on to it. And that's, that's a tough one for people. So um, how do you, you know, as a uh, more of a, in, in your experience of psychiatry, because that's your spe specialization, how uh, do you get the person to that point where they understand that the story is artificial and the story actually was fabricated after the energy? You know, earlier on in our conversation, you're talking about you know, just things that you felt yourself personally and myself, you know, with my anger issues in the past and that sort of thing, you know, nothing out there, I, I came to the point of realization can make me angry. Yes. You know, I have anger. And so things out there will trigger that, but it already pre-existed. So, um, you know, story is, again, a convenient little victim device, as far as I'm concerned, that we attach to the energy and say, oh, well, that's why I do that. And uh, so here we are as, uh, as a people on the planet that are talking story and nothing else. I, I couldn't agree more. And the ownership of our emotional terrain is... Um, it's a very high level concept, right? Because it's part of the illusion that we imagine we are being subjected to somebody else's behavior, right? They are, it's even in our language, somebody makes me angry, right? It's almost never, I feel anger, that is my anger, and you happen to have helped me to feel it, right? So that, you know, that's very operative um, consciousness in my relationship with Sayer, and you know, that's a lot of how we catch each other, you know, telling our victim stories and understanding like, wow, what I'm feeling right now is a programmed aspect of myself that I can release, you know, literally release, like feel and allow to um, exist, but that I don't have to identify it as relevant to the here and now. Um, because those kinds of projections when they're unconscious are very harmful. You know, that is probably the root of most um, violence and harm on, on the planet. 
Um, but how it is that we can get to a point, particularly in psychiatry, of taking responsibility for, um, especially if you've been treated in the system, taking responsibility for, uh, you know, the ways in which we identified as sick is, is interesting because psychiatry is very different from, you know, endocrinology. If you're diagnosed with, you know, diabetes and, and there's an implicit, you know, theoretical problem with your pancreas, it's easy to remain in that objectification of the body realm. But in psychiatry, when you're diagnosed with a mental illness, there is an implicit uh, condemnation of you, right? You as a person, your behavior, and potentially your behavior is so problematic that it renders you a danger not only to yourself, but even to other people. And that spell is very, very powerful. And most people who have been diagnosed psychiatrically will tell you, most of my patients told me, um, that there was some kind of collusive uh, energy in the diagnostic appointment, the first one, where they actually felt relief and validation to be labeled, right? And these labels are for life, right? Psychiatry does not cure. So once you get that label, it's for the long haul, unless of course you, you awaken, right? And so how could that ever feel like a relief? But it subtly reifies this idea that, oh, you know what, I knew something was wrong with me. I knew I was different in an all the wrong ways. And you know, I describe many people who are captured by psychiatry as canaries in the coal mine, who are rightly sensitive uh, to everything that is wrong on this planet. Again, whether it's you know the the toxicity of the environment, the wrong diet, you know, the wrong exposure um, to screens or EMFs, and the and the absence of exposure to nature, whether it's toxic relationships that they've engaged or a meaningless job or just kind of living in this three-dimensional reality and feeling the bereft nature of the unacknowledged invisible, right? So that people who are captured by the, the psychiatric system expressed symptoms on a soul level, right? Of course, also on a body and psychological level that were a kind of protest, that were a kind of declaration of no, I'm not participating in this as if it's normal. Right. So, you know, Krishnamurti says it's no sign of health to be, you know, well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Well, look at the people who we call healthy are the ones who are well adapted to this profoundly sick society. If you're not well adapted, you must be expressing symptoms. You must be struggling with your health and you may even be um, described as as sick. But that that rightful sensitivity is perverted and inverted and described as a, as a, as a weakness and as a pathology. And it, it, there is a collusion with the, um, that shadow realm that says something is wrong with me. I knew it. You know, I've known it since I was four, you know, when, uh, you know, when I was violated by my uncle and I knew I must have done something wrong to deserve that, right? And then that program persists on into adulthood, largely subterranean. Um, and it's not until there is... Um, this, this sense of being trapped in, the, in a cage, right? This sense of like, there's gotta be more to me, right? And I gotta get out of here. That rattling in the cage of the soul, I think is what calls people to the process of disengaging with the psychiatric system and resolving um, the, the victim narrative, which is some of the most courageous work I've ever uh, perceived as possible in, in the human dimension, because what I have watched patients work through, um, which is physical, 
right? Withdrawal from these medications is, I think, the most significant physical um, uh, addictive phenomenon on the planet. Um, it's psychological because it involves the transformation of all of these um, thought forms that are keeping one imprisoned. Uh, and then it's spiritual because you have to begin the process of coming home to love. And that is not easy because it also involves, you know, in some cases, reclaiming aspects of you that have been holding hate um, or that have been holding apathy or whatever, you know, it might be. And so it's, um, it's like a calling, you know, it's not anything that can be induced or coerced or, or really even inspired. There's just a moment where it's like the lights come on in the room and you, you got to look at what's there. Yeah. You know, um, I spent a lot of years in Hawaii and I had the opportunity to work with uh, traditional healers over there. And they had a wonderful understanding that dates back, you know, centuries as far as they handled people with issues. So if you went to the kahuna, uh, say you brought your daughter in who was, uh, you know, demonstrating symptoms of some type, the kahuna would say, uh, fine, what we need to do is get the entire clan together. Yeah. And, you know, way back in the day, even if they had to canoe from neighboring islands, which took, you know, weeks or whatever, that's okay. And they all got together and they did Pono Pono, which means you clear the air. So uh, whether it was a distant relative or your parents, whatever, the, the whole idea was the illness in this young girl is demonstrating the ills of the entire clan, but this person with the symptoms is the canary in the coal mine, as you, you know, put it, that is demonstrating the ills of the, uh, the whole shebang there. So not until the entire clan got together, talked things out, and the air was cleared on all levels uh, by the kahuna's assistance, then they would bring that individual, the, the young girl, into the kahuna, and then he would do his final thing, but wouldn't even attempt to do it until the collective was cleared first. And it's interesting, right, how that concept of interbeing uh, has, to borrow a Thich Nhat Hanh term, has been perverted uh, by the concept of the greater good and the immunocompromised and this idea that, um, you know, has captured the empathic and compassionate responses innate to every human uh, in this psychological operation that says, well, you are only uh, a good person if you're thinking about others, right? Put your mask on for your grandma kind of a thing. And at the heart of that, all of that is truth right? It's the truth you just described, that we are all connected and that we have the opportunity to care so deeply about what another is experiencing as to take responsibility in part for it, right? And to understand that we are only as strong as the weakest, you know, member of our clan. But when there is, when that is not held in, you know, paradoxical uh, contradistinction to personal responsibility and individuation, right? It's like the two pillars, as my therapist would say, like of connection and individuation. One without the other is merger. And merger is, is not ultimately um, a, a resting state <laughs> that serves our experience of ourselves. And we came here certainly, I think, you know, to experience oneness and divinity 
and transcendence. But we also came here to experience what it is to be me, <laughs> you, right? This, this incredibly unique opportunity to manifest as this particular point of cosmic consciousness. And so when there's only one upheld, right, this greater good concept, which of course, you know, has, has been leveraged for biopolitical control and, and biosecurity agendas, when that is held without the, the sovereignty of the, the individual that requires that individual take personal responsibility first and foremost for their experience, then there is a lot of potential corruption, you know, that can manifest. Yeah, and in reality, if uh, as an individuation, why would there be a purpose for embodiment in the first place if we did not have a completely unique perspective? Uh, there would be no reason to duplicate that in another person, let alone take an entire culture and right. make everybody conform. Homogenous. Right. And I think that's, you know, I think you both would agree that when we, when we get into the realms of truth, there's mostly unanswered questions and a lot of paradoxes, right? And, and this is one of them. Like, how do we, how do we understand that there, you know, even if you look at, you know, some of the, um, I don't know if we want to go here, but some of the, you know, potential Luciferian concepts that might be at the helm of some of what's unfolding, there is, there is, there is beauty in there, right? There is truth. There is an origin story for some of these beliefs that is very pure and innocent. And it's in the handling perversion and inversion of so many aspects of that truth and beauty, you know, like this concept of oneness and the disappearance of the individual, um, the transcendence of, of the, your, your, your smaller human self um, that defines transhumanistic agendas, for example. There's something in there that's true and beautiful, and the operate, you know, as it's operationalized, it is subjected to disconnection from heart, from love, and you know, from what most of us would understand as you know, benevolent impulse. And so, how how that's why just fighting it is an incomplete practice um, because you could potentially lose. You know, it's like the yin yang, you know, you could end up losing parts of yourself in the full condemnation um, and subjugation of your seeming opponent. So how is it that we can own our part, right? And, and own the parts of us that, that are like that. Uh, and like I said, you know, I've had, had tons of work to do. I've restructured my entire business, uh, literally, to, to no longer be um, a CEO of my own business because I don't want to practice um, authoritarian, you know, programs. I took my kids out of school because I don't want them relating to authority figures in the ways that I was indoctrinated around. I want to uh, own the many, many facets of my own manifestation of that which I judge and condemn and maybe even am fearful of, right? Because I know if I don't do that, I can get caught in a recursive loop that ends up, you know, um, condemning parts of me that I need to be whole. Yeah, it's it's interesting how we live in a world that in this postmodern world where everyone is in their own bubble of selfdom, but in a way that's totally inverted and perverted, as you were saying, where because it's built on a foundation that lacks the spiritual understanding of consciousness being one of eternal 
um, connection to a higher self, right? That incarnates here for a specific purpose to experience duality so that we can in turn grow and get off the wheel of reincarnation if you believe in that. Or there's lots of different ways to uh, accept those ideas. But I think more and more people are coming to that understanding. And yet we then have this push for collectivism that is so you know, overpowering to a lot of people who feel the need to, that are stuck in this um, postmodern bubble of, of entrapped in their own kind of self bubble that we're literally seeing with people in their cars wearing masks and gloves and, and all this. So I think w- what we try to always stress to people is, is yeah, getting back in connection with your higher self through, a, through this, doing the work of spiritual growth. And that really is the new medicine is getting retapped to those what those indigenous cultures are so brilliant of having those um, kind of ceremonial steps into adulthood through challenging themselves, like the men having to go out in the forest for a week and survive. And uh, these indigenous cultures understood this. Um, and so we, we're really kind of, it's interesting how we have a system that really inverts all these ideas that are true. Like you were saying, there's elements of truth in everything we're seeing, even in a weird twist away the transhumanistic model. Uh, because yeah, we can, we, our consciousness can go other places. And it's, uh, it's just cool to see that we are using their own technology. Like we're on a digital platform right now and we're spreading the truth that, you know, this isn't it but we can use it so that we can all grow. So there is no fear. There's no fear involved here. It's all about just higher understanding and doing the work. So it's exciting to see people like yourself, Kelly, that are, and I'd love for you to expand a little bit on, on what you've been doing recently with this, my body thing and what's coming up. If you could give a little more context to that and some links to that so people could understand that, because I feel like by using their, these technologies, these digital platforms for our purpose of self-realization on the more spiritual path, we can then all evolve to a more um, self-realized, decentralized path that um, gets away from the victim narrative and allows us to come together as a global consciousness that transcends the digital traps and the centralized traps that we are currently facing. Right. Exactly. Right. So I think that... uh... (laughs) We are, we do have this moment where we can work with technology to uh, share the, you know, energies and information um, to make connections that, that serve the, the creation of the world that we hope to inhabit, you know, in the very near future. And I also know that, you know, for me, I've had to really look at, you know, do I want to own an iPhone in the future? Or does that feel incoherent to me? Does that feel like participating in something that I'm judging? And to just really get as clean as possible in um, the engagements, my engagements, you know, no longer being kind of one foot in each world, the way I was speaking, I've, I've inhabited energetically for, for a long time. And so, you know, I could say, I don't believe in vaccines, or I don't believe in pharmaceutical products, or, um, you know, I don't believe in masks. And there's so many um, negative statements that could define my beliefs. And I've been very defined in a polarized way by my um, beliefs against uh, many things. But like I mentioned before, I have many beliefs for, right? And, And one of them 
um, is my belief in the power of the human body, period, <laughs> right? Define that as you will. Um, but it extends to a belief in the regenerative capacity of the body, um, a belief in the wisdom of the body, um, a belief in the meaningful expression uh, you know, that the body's symptoms actually tell us about ourselves. It's me telling me about me. And so there is no, um, nothing to fear, right? There's no adversarial dynamic here of me whipping my body into shape or whatever. Uh, and so this concept, you know, when you talked about David Icke, uh, when I saw his, his first, um, you know, protest speech, I, I cried. I literally, when he was screaming freedom, I was like weeping in my kitchen, you know, just my goosebumps everywhere. I felt so inspired. <laughs> and, you know, I, um, I really have, have found him to be quite a beacon. I mean, he could be controlled opposition for all I know, but I found him to be, you know, a beacon throughout this process. Um, mostly because, you know, he holds his agitation and his anger um, with a deeper perspective on consciousness. You know, like I'm reading his book now, I'm like probably a hundred pages in and all he's talked about is, is the nature of consciousness. However, um, I do believe that the field, energetic field of a protest is still asking permission from mommy medicine and daddy government to give us back the power that they have. And it's old model. It's old model. Sure. Because we, like Barry, you've known forever, you know, we don't have to ask for that permission. We already have it. And what does that look like? What does walking that walk look like? It looks like never, ever doing anything that makes you uncomfortable to serve another purpose for a person. Because I believe that what's best for you is actually best for me, that, that we get to a place where we all are doing the best thing, you know, for ourselves. And it ends up being for better, or for worse, the best thing for another person. You know, like, for example, I had a conversation with a friend recently who's like, feeling guilty because she's going to terminate uh, like a house sitting um, agreement, right? And she's like, wow, I just, it's not my style. I'm very loyal and I feel like I should really follow through on it. And meanwhile, where she's living, it's just not working for her family anymore. That um, self-negation and self-violation in service of another, we have been entrained to think that that's being good, right? But what if her reneging on this agreement and going to do what's best, you know, in the most authentic and, and compassionate way she can is actually the best thing for that homeowner, right? Even if she doesn't know it or like it at the time, right? So there is a certain harmony we can come into that may look like selfishness or disharmony at the outset. And anyone who has experienced healing, whether it's radical or subtle, right? Maybe you just I don't know, started to walk barefoot outside a little more, a couple minutes a day, and you started to kind of feel a little like pep in your step. That's a radical act of self-reclamation, right? So anyone who's experienced that knows that they've come into contact with the power that they have to architect their human experience. So if we, what if we just like open up a, a portal, right? And we create and generate a field on one day across the world where we celebrate what it is to be human and what it is to be alive and with a specific focus on the human body and on health and wellness as we define it and the, the, those definitions are not oppositional and they're not referential to the dominant medical model 
right? So what if we have signs and instead of saying, no mask, not me, you know, the, the, the sign says, I healed my Hashimoto's, right? And what if I'm walking around, you know, downtown and some woman is like, oh, what is she, a Trumper? Or like, oh, look at those irresponsible, you know, uh, anti-vaxxers or whatever. And she's like, oh, hold on a minute. Like her, her, her sign says, I heal Hashimoto's and my sister just got diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I didn't know that you could heal that. That's interesting. I wonder, okay. And then she goes on with her day, right? But there's a little teeny seed planted potentially of possibility. And what if just knowing that she saw one sign that said, I heal my Hashimoto's means that she can't unknow that that can be healed, even if by one person, right? And of one medicine right? Which is potentially the most disruptive kind because once, you know, one monkey washes a potato, soon enough, all the monkeys are washing the potatoes, you know, the world over and that field has been generated. So our intention um, was simply to kind of, for even our own healing, you know, me and Sayer to just have an experience of celebration because we know how to celebrate. We know how to have a good time. We know how, you know, to experience the ecstasy of our body through dance and music. And I know you do too, you know? And so, so what if we just have a day where we focus on that? And that was the humble origin story, you know? And we were like, okay, if a couple people show up to our, our little positive rally in Miami, that'll be great. It'll be really healing for us. And meanwhile, we started spreading the word and now we're on every livable continent and 25 states. We have a hundred ambassadors organizing events, totally grassroots. We're not, this is not a top-down thing at all. Um, and I think people are ready, you know, yep. I think that not only are the fighters among us, you know, like me kind of worn weary of trumpeting the same stuff over and over again. If you still think that COVID exists and you think this is about a virus, may your path be blessed, you know, because clearly you have not been subscribed to my newsletter <laughs> or whatever <laughs> I said has not penetrated. So I'm tired, you know, I'm tired of saying the same thing. Um, and then there are people who just don't want to fight, you know, big daddy and, and big mommy. So maybe they'll fight with their neighbors, right? Because that's an easier target. Um, but then there are people who just don't want to fight at all. And they don't actually want to identify as activists. And that whole realm um, excludes them and, and what they can bring energetically to the table, which um, if you watch the reel, you know, that we that actually Joe Yi put together uh, on- uh, Street, The Street MD. MD on it's thankyoubodyrally.com. Uh, if you watch the reel, you'll see, you know, like there's so much authentic humanity conveyed. It makes me tear up just thinking about it, you know, like it's, um, how can that not be the way, you know? So it's super inspiring to me. <laughs> Bear, you got to do one, man. Um, yeah. I, we, you we, guys happened to be trying to save your own lives at the time I was knocking on your door for a video. I, I was on the fire up, literally battling literally. the fire. Oh, no, uh, literally. It was exactly the time. Um, but I know you're there in spirit and, you know, it's, you've already, you already inhabit this realm. But how can we bring it, you know, to others? So like kind of the format for our event um, in Miami is, is going to be some kind of like inspirational talks about our stories of healing. And, and then, uh, we're hoping to hit the streets, you know, with some positive signs and maybe a call and response and, and then come back. And we have an incredible community here, um, for ecstatic dance and drumming nice. and 
music and we know how to open that portal you know on a friday we do it all the time and there's so much uh, we have a, my, one of my friends, Jeleni, you know, she's, um, she facilitates eye gazing. We just had an event the other day. If you sit with a stranger for 30 seconds, the, the portal of your, your souls opens yep. and your stories fall away. And you don't need to know a single thing about that person to feel your own heart. That's all it takes. And so that human connection is the greatest act of defiance because that resonant remembrance of our humanity is how we reclaim our sovereignty. It cannot be through scientific debate, you know, and insistence of our non-consent. That's a part of it. Trust me, I'm going to still be doing that probably till the day I die. But I know in my heart that the real way forward is growing this field. And so that's our intention, you know, on October 16th, on Friday, uh, the 16th, to just start what could ultimately be an enduring movement, but just to yeah. really make our mark on this process. Do you have a website for that or anything that we can drop in? Yeah, for sure. It's um, thankyoubodyrally.com. Okay, I'm going to put that in. And we're on Instagram. We have incredible volunteers and um, it's so beautiful, you know, it's been created there. It's really a work of art, which is a nice contribution to the cesspool that Instagram has become. Insta freaks. Yeah. And selfishness uh, isn't, I was just going to say selfishness isn't that bad of a thing because if you do it for no other reason, when you just get in resonance with other people, when you come from love and compassion, it feels so good. And, um, you know, in fact, when you kind of get the hang of it and then periodically you fall off the wagon, you say, why the heck did I even do that? I feel like crap. I might as well, you know, ask to catch, uh, you know, some other kind of symptom. And so, yeah, it just feels good. So for no other reason, if people, um, you know, just kind of drop their contentiousness and, and just relate to other people. And if nothing else, just, uh, you know, developed a knack of opening up their heart space. It's just, it's the best place in the world to be. The only thing that's been hijacked from us is our imagination. And uh, simultaneously, of course, we're taught that our imagination isn't real, but of course the controllers understand that it's the only real thing there is. So what you're doing is, is amazing because you're getting people together and you're all imagining a different way to be. And that's the only thing that's going to change anything. It's not going to be who you vote for. Uh, I don't believe there's a political solution. Uh, it's not going to be any external thing. It's not going to be an herb that you take. Those things are all great. They have their time and place, but it's about, getting back in control of our own imagination and learning how to stay in our heart space, which feels better than any other place we could possibly be. That's why they're called imaginal cells, right? In the chrysalis yeah. to bring us into that butterfly state. Yeah. That we probably, it's, it's so glorious. We can't even fathom it, you know, from our current vantage point. Yeah. And being in person is so like the thing with staring somebody in the eye, you could try to do that on zoom, but you have that. <laughs> You have that digital separation, but being in that in the morphic field or whatever you want to call it with somebody and then looking directly into their eyes, you're, you, you'd have to be dead inside for your heart not to start beating. I mean, it's, it's, it really is. And in the idea of dance, there's a reason why all the indigenous, indigenous cultures dance. And I was just on the fire. I had the pleasure of sharing a, a, a tender with a, a Yurok Indian for a lot of the time. 
and he talked about his religion a lot. And when some, and the same thing that Bear was mentioning in Hawaii, when somebody was sick or had an issue, they all come together and they dance around mm -hmm. the person. And there's something really important about moving your body and, and, and being connected with others in that movement, letting go, because it stops your brain. Exactly. And it, it, it connects you all together in a, a more spiritual kind of um, togetherness. So as a, someone who's been a DJ for 20 years, over 20 years in the underground, that was always what I, I, that's what I get off on. I get off on getting, making people dance. And uh, it's just, it's, if, if people haven't done that and done ecstatic dance, I highly recommend it. Um, there's some uh, Dawnbreaker parties and stuff in LA I've done and gone to where literally people are getting up and it's mostly sober people um, with the sun coming up and it's just ecstatic dance to either live music or a DJ. And it is an amazing feeling of coming together to do that. Um, on that note, we too are doing, a, as I started the podcast, those who are coming in later on the live stream, we're doing a weekend gathering in Joshua Tree called Music and Sky that is exactly that, which will be workshops, breath work, all that stuff, and then nights of dancing, two nights of dancing. Um, and we'll have silent disco too that go on that will go on later for those trying to sleep. So we'll be respectful to those. And then we're going to have actually sunrise set too for people who want to get up or are still up who will dance to the sun coming up. And that's an amazing thing too. If you've ever, you know, if, uh, you, you know, experience a sunrise dancing event, I highly recommend it because there's something really magical about it. So um, if you are interested in, in knowing more about that, guys, uh, Music and Sky, uh, you can telegram us uh, and find out more about that. And I did put the thankyoubodyrally.com there in the link. It'll be in the show notes as well. Uh, Kelly Brogan, such an amazing talk today. I had probably 500 things I wanted to bring up. So um, we'll definitely have to have you back on because, yeah, we are, um, we are definitely on the same level on so many things. Uh, and uh, you and Sayer are just, oh, man, just we're, we're just so lucky to have you guys because you really are a powerful force out there. And it's just um, it's amazing where we've come. It feels like an eternity since even last January, right? Um, and it's just like anything, like we're, I was talking about earlier with the, the polarity, the duality of the, of the nature of this existence, which forces evolution. That's how I've been looking at this whole thing. It's like, it's been, an, it, it's really brought us so many amazing people into the fold, into Alpha Vedic, that we probably would have taken a lot longer to get to know. So it's really kind of fast-tracked the growth of, of our little family company here and all the amazing networking we've been able to do. So for me, it's just been such a positive force for us in a weird way. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so, I feel so blessed, you know, to, to have reunited with both of you in this lifetime and, and to call you allies of my heart. It's really, truly um, been a, a blessing and, and yeah, just to, it's like when you meet someone and, and you're like, Oh, I don't have to start at letter C in the alphabet. We get to start at like, you know, Oh, or whatever. It's just like, there's just so much that, um, is resonant that it's very liberating. You know, we get to talk about far more interesting things. Well, we get to create our new, our own alphabet, you know, it's like no backtracking. Let's talk about new stuff that no one really talked about yet, which is what gets Bear and I off of. We just had Dr. Edith Abunto Chan up here for the weekend and had an amazing dinner uh, gathering at the farm. And that we just 
that's what we do. We just had an amazing conversations, pushing the limits of where stuff should be going. And so um, that's really what we love. And the more of those kind of fireside chats that we can get in person, I think the better. So we'll be, we'll be trying to do more of those and, and bringing friends and family and, and new colleagues and stuff up here and doing more of that kind of stuff. And eventually we'll have a, a cool podcast studio on the farm where we'll be doing in-person podcasts, flying people out, having the whole weekend experience, getting their hands dirty, you know, in the farm if they want, going to the river, et cetera. And then we'll sit down and do like a more formalized podcast in person because I feel like in person, so important. So important. Uh, Well, Kelly Brogan, thanks so much for joining us today. Bear Lando, any parting words for our community? Uh, No, just thank you. And, uh, you know, I kind of came into this kicking and screaming and and when Michael and some of our business partners said, hey, you know, we want to do a podcast and get out there a bit. I said, no way. Absolutely no way. And uh, I'm so glad I did because it's brought me in contact with people like yourself and just the the caliber of uh, folks that we've met and and you and Sarah. It's just, it's been absolutely delightful. And, And again, I truly am honored to uh, you know, be in your company. And uh, I really look forward to um, getting you up here in our yeah. neck of the woods, because uh, what I would like to see going forth is to further the ball downfield, you know, into the electric bow train, because we have techniques that anybody can learn right now, how to literally bend waveforms to identify the things that are interfering. Because I don't believe we have time anymore to talk story. Yeah. Um, you know, and people that are ready to go to the next level are ready to go. And the technologies that we have right now can help us get there. And they're technologies that are organic. They aren't extraneous technologies in a way they are but they require a consciousness interface with them in order to make them work. And it brings in the whole qualitative measuring side of science that was deliberately taken from us. And uh, I believe, you know, going forward, that's where we need to go. And people, when they're ready, can go there right now. We don't have to take a substance. We don't have to take a seminar. Uh, we don't need a guru. We've all got it. And that's what we want to share with people. And I can't wait to uh, meet you in person someday, even though we've had a lot of great times online with each other. Amen. It will happen. It's, you know, y'all are at the yeah. top of our travel list for sure. And such an inspiration. I love, I love the opportunity to learn um, from both of you, actually, and, and really feel blessed to have this connection. So thank you. And same here. And I, um, I've had some great times in Miami Beach and that, that whole area. So uh, it's a special place and a great place to go when it's winter here. So um, yeah, we uh, will definitely, uh, once traveling gets a little better, when we're kind of, I guess, maybe it might just come down to us teleporting. Got to get that <laughs> figured out, Bear, because I haven't liked flying on a plane. And I don't know about you people say it's bad now. I think it's been bad for for at least a decade or more. It's just a miserable experience. Well, since 9-11 at least, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially someone who's six foot, almost six foot four. So um, anyways, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Uh, if you enjoyed this 
broadcast this uh, podcast, please uh, go join our mailing list on alphavedic.com. Uh, go join Kelly's Telegram too. Kelly, um, do you know, do you offshoot, what's the best place for people to go to find all your stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, I've been shadow banned and censored on Instagram <laughs> for a while. So, you know, good luck finding me there. But I'm um, on Kelly Brogan MD on uh, Telegram. And then my newsletter, of course. Yeah, and uh, really enjoying Telegram. All I mean, it seems like everybody's moved there, and so we thank the Telegram guys because they've been pretty staunch with sticking with with sovereign issues and not giving in and allowing their platform to be a total freedom platform. So that's great, and we really uh, appreciate that. So t.me forward slash Alpha Vedic is our Telegram, and we share a lot of Kelly's content, and she's actually in there as well as Sayer and a lot of these amazing people that are featured on her My Body website there. So we've got a really great community where you can interact with us and, and join us in this, um, this evolution of consciousness. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody in DLive for supporting today. Thanks for all the donations. Really appreciate you li alive inside Sedona, Bear, and AlphaCast33. You guys rule. Have a beautiful day. Everyone get outside. Enjoy some sunlight, some fresh air if you can. Get your hands dirty in the soil. And um, we'll see you on Thursday with we'll have we have and Dr. Andrew Kaufman joining us. It will be an amazing talk as we prepare for the second wave. <laughs> thanks, guys. Take it easy. And uh, thanks again, Kelly. It was such a pleasure having you on. Cheers. Thank you.